We're studying letter number nine in the Tanya, book four. The Tanya has five books, like the Torah has five books. And the fourth book is just handwritten letters. It's a collection of letters that were written in the Alter Rebbe's own hand. And they were added as an addendum to the Tanya after he passed. Because they wanted to preserve whatever extant manuscripts they had from him. So there's no continuity. Each letter stands on its own, and that's why each class that you come to is self-contained. You missed last week, it doesn't matter. This is a whole new conversation. And this letter is quite a provocative one. But if we have the intellectual honesty to um, at least discover the idea, hear the idea, and then allow it to filter down and perhaps become a practical part of the way we live, that'll be enough. And the way I want to frame it is uh, with the following question. And it's a question that's very popular nowadays, which is, is morality innate in the human being or does it have to be dictated by a higher power? Is morality something that we come to on our own? We don't need God for it? Or does it have to be prescribed? We have to be told to be moral and how to be moral. Any thoughts? Yes. Okay. <laughs> You're in the splash zone, so. If it's innate in some people. It's innate in some people and others not. <coughs> That was my thought. I was that was yes, your thought? I think they're both. Oh, yes, they're both true. Yeah. Okay, that was kind of like what you said before, but the yes. I think you have to, uh, people are always fighting their evil inclination. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the same thing. They, they need the godliness in order to find the morality. They need, so, yeah. We need, we need God to tell us how to be moral. Yeah. For that very reason, we have the commandments that in a way take us <laughs> to that moral level. Yes. <coughs> the, Torah, the Torah has... That's right. The Torah has commandments on morality. The Torah isn't just a spiritual guide. It has commandments like don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Um, Obviously, there's major ramifications to this question. Because if we assume that morality is innate in the human, so on the one hand, you'll find people having more joy in the fulfillment of their morality because they feel it's a part of them. It matches, it aligns with their inner center. At the same time, you have the risk where um, if you leave morality to the humans, we can condone some pretty nasty stuff. Okay, the classic recent example is the Holocaust. If you want, the human being can justify mass murder. That's the way we are. We have the capacity to go, uh, to go both ways. So... The way Torah sees it, certainly the way Yiddishkeit sees it, morality does need to be dictated. We have to be told in the Torah, lo tirzach, don't murder, because then we're not killing because it's godly. We have to be told to honor our parents because then when we honor them, it's godly. And our moods don't get to dictate it. So that's the, the basic premise, that morality does need to be dictated. But here is where the tough part comes in, which is if you accept that morality has to be dictated, K, 
can you also accept that the dictator is going to be the one to decide the terms of those morals? And this could be tough. Because if you say, if you submit, and in our case we're going to say it's Hashem and the Torah, that Hashem and the Torah will be the one to dictate how to be moral, then we also have to acknowledge and sometimes struggle with the way that the Torah defines these morals. So just so we stay controversial, I'm not getting into it, but murder, that's the classic one. Torah says do not murder. And yet the very same Torah says that we are instructed to kill certain nations. Amalek, you talked about before. The seven nations. No. Yeah, the literal reading of the Torah says that when you come into the land, it's your job to chase the nations out and to make sure that, uh, they don't, they, that they no longer exist. Now, I get it. There's different ways to do it. You can make a peace treaty, send them out. Sh- fine. But the very same Hashem who said, don't kill, sometimes says to do it. Lying. You're not allowed to lie. And yet the Torah says in certain cases, you should lie when you have to preserve the peace. What about idol worship? Here's a kind of a flip side. Idol worship never, even if it costs somebody their life. So you have a beautiful uh, apple growing from a tree and something about the properties of this apple is going to heal this sick person. But the tree was worshipped as an idol. Now it's forbidden. The guy's going to die. He's sitting in the hospital. Hashem says, this is where we draw the line. Like with kosher too, (coughs) like you're not hurting anybody but there's a tendency because some of the rules are sort of complex to complex to rules of kosher and- yes we eat and then we have to slaughter the animal and this is how it goes and, and it's a struggle that, that, that we go through uh, what about working or providing for the family every moral being understands that you have to go to work to provide and yet Hashem says no working on Shabbos no working on Shabbos Speak to anybody who was in America in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even today. Shabbos is a huge money-making time. For real estate agents, Come on. The Rebbe used to say, and this is what, you know, the Rebbe can say this because he, he sees the truth, but when people would ask him about that, he would say, yeah, you might make more money on Shabbos, but where's the money going to go? It may go to things that you don't want to spend money on. But uh, th- this is it. And if we're intellectually honest, it does have to go all the way. If we say that Hashem is the source of our morals, then we have to accept all the terms and conditions that He, that he places on it. There's an incredibly moving story where uh, there was a Hasidic Rebbe who lost a son. And it happened on Shabbos. On Shabbos, you're not supposed to mourn. So he kept his cool. He kept his composure the whole Shabbos. And right after Shabbos came out, he began to cry uncontrollably to the point that his followers thought that he was being excessive. Even with the tragedy of losing his own son, they felt it was way over the top. So they came to the Rebbe and they said, Rebbe, it's too much. Why, why are you crying so much? 
And he said, I'm crying because I feel that I'm pained over the fact that it was my son versus had it been another person. In other words, the very fact that the loss of his own son bothered him more than the loss of another Jew itself bothered him. No, what, what he's saying is he feels extreme pain because it's his own flesh and blood. But had it been another Jew's son, he wouldn't feel that much pain. That itself caused him a tremendous pain. It's high level. But that's where this Rebbe lived. He was so connected to God and the fact that every Jew is God's child equally that the loss of any Jew should bother me equally. But it didn't. And that's what bothered him. And in this letter, letter number nine, the Alter Rebbe makes the same argument about tzedakah. Many of the letters in this book are about tzedakah. He says like this, tzedakah is the right thing to do. Charity. You should support people. You have more, give to others. But if it's just the right thing to do, and if that's the only reason um, why you do it, then on a human level, you would have to admit that tzedakah should be foremost to those closest to you. Family first, friends first, people that I know first. That's who I'm going to give my money away to first. And later, people that are strangers to me, people that are not so involved in my life, people that are further from me. And, and there would be a human justification for that, which is, I give where my heart is. My heart is with my children. My heart is with my friends. My heart is with my associates. And then, my heart could be for wider causes. But it starts with me, and therefore, it reaches those that are closest to me first. But the author of it first says, let me push your buttons a little bit. If that's the way that you give, it's selfish giving. Those are the words of the author Rebbe. If that's the way you prioritize your wallet, it's selfish. Why? Now, it doesn't say it in the Tanya explicitly, but here's my interpretation. If it, it's based on the love that you have towards others, first of all, it limits the giving to the extent of the love. And this is a sad part of the human condition, but we all know of people that disowned those closest to them because of some kind of a fight. Where when the love didn't come in to play, they betrayed their own obligation and didn't give it forward. Now that's in extreme cases. But even if we don't go to those extreme cases, the fact that it starts with who I love and who I feel closest to, in a way, and again, we have to be honest because it doesn't hit the heart in, uh, in the exact same way, but in the head, if we can just get into the mind for a moment. Logically, it's, there's a selfish element to it. I give only where I feel good about. Why should we give tzedakah, says the Altar. But let me give you the, the real deal. How does Torah, specifically more Kabbalah, how does Jewish mysticism see giving tzedakah, it sees giving tzedakah as being in the image of God. Hashem 
gives and gives freely. There's nothing we can do to deserve God's kindness. He gives it to us simply out of His goodwill. And He gives it to us every single day and according to Hasidus, every single second because the world is coming into creation perpetually. So in a way, at every single moment, God is expressing His incredibly divine generosity. We, who are created in the image of God, should do the same with those godly souls that we encounter. Every single Jew is a spark of Hashem. So when they're lacking, our giving should come to fill that lack. Not because I love them, not because it starts with me, but because there's another piece of God that's starving. There's another piece of God that needs something. Now that's a whole nother twist. See, when, uh, when you have that perspective, so two things will happen. First, no matter who you give to, that feeling will stay the same. No matter if it's your own child or a stranger, they're both equally pieces of God. Second, when you do provide for your family first, and you should, as you said, but you'll be doing it because Torah said so. Your order of priorities, like in the conversation about morality, will be dictated by the one who gave you the commandment. What's wrong with that? Nothing. If that's the perspective, that's great. But if that's the perspective, you have to be willing to take it all the way. And here's what the Alter Rebbe throws in his punchline, which is, if you look in Jewish law, if you look in the Shulchan Aruch, it does say clearly that while providing for one's family comes first, there is somebody who comes before family. And that is the righteous people of the generation. The righteous people of the generation come before your own family, especially if they live in Israel, especially if there's nobody like them in the diaspora. So they're the chief tzaddik. And this is the reason that the Alter Rebbe wrote this letter. The Alter Rebbe was providing for a community in Israel who had been led by the great tzaddik of Mendel of Haradok. And he was, every year, the Alter Rebbe every year would send out a letter as a fundraising pitch to collect money. This, this is the case at hand. He says, we have a tzaddik of the generation who left nobody like him in the diaspora. We have the obligation to support him by the Torah's mandate more than anybody else. So it's like a dilution because you have two agendas and they're both great in their commandments, but the tzedakah is it's kind of diluted because it overlaps with family or... or it does. And, and, and the Torah says that it should. But it's because the Torah says that it should. That's very different than the human-based morality. It's the same thing. Where does, where does the the inspired giving come from? Does it come from yourself, in which case it's selfish and can be dictated by your own self? Or is it godly, in which case it's dictated wholly by the godly definition? It's a tough pill to swallow because that's not how we're wired. The Alter seems to be saying, if you do a simple reading, that barring the bare necessities, the bare necessities, if there's somebody in need that qualifies as the tzaddik of a generation who comes before family, then as soon as you've covered the bare needs, tzedakah to him should come first. 
And that's why I say it's, it's not easy to process it. Bare needs, basic needs. He defines it more in the future letter. So come back in a couple of weeks and we're going to get the exact definition. But here, that, 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 here in this letter, that's the case the Alter Rebbe makes. And he says, therefore, I take the right to ask of each of you to put in something into the pot to support the tzaddik in Israel. The practical application of, that, of this is very difficult, right? Very difficult. Because here we have a pot of money that you, you want to give up to a tzaddik. Yeah. And there's always somebody in need in Israel. Mm. It has to be the tzaddik of a generation. Oh, the tzaddik? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Everything else is after family. The Alter was making a specific pitch for the community that he was supporting, which was being led by the tzaddik of the time. And by the way, just to throw in a little Kabbalah. It doesn't say it in this letter, but it's a basic tenet that the Jewish people are one whole. All the Jewish souls are considered to be one unit. And like a body, there's different limbs in the Jewish people. Some of us are the feet, some of us are the hands, some of us are the nails, some of us are the the torso, whatever it is. And the tzaddik is the head. So when you think about it in those terms, it becomes a little easier to understand why if the head is sustained, if the head is taken care of, then Hashem will make sure that the entire nation is taken care of as well. What does tzaddik mean? Tzaddik means the righteous man. Who's to decide? Who's to decide? Who's to decide who that righteous man? That's right. If he's a tzaddik. Yes. That's a great... That's a great... uh, how do we know? How do we know? How do we know who it is? I'll tell you how you know. You know when you examine whether the person is acting like a head. Just like a head takes care of the entire body, is looking after the entire body, the leader who looks after every single Jew is the one who you can know is the tzaddik of the generation. You're talking about one person here or there could be multiple? There could be multiple. There could be, yeah. There could be multiple, no doubt. Is Tzadik the root? But typically it's one. Tzadik is the root. They, they do share the same root. Yeah. And in that time, he was one of them. And Dr. Abimint says no words. He, he starts off pretty harsh. He says, I want, I, in this letter, I love you guys. He calls them Ahuvai, Achai, Vereai, my beloved, my brothers, my friends. Some of you have fallen asleep. Was he single? That's what he says. No. No, he was married. By the way, that's a great question. And the Alter Rebbe practiced what he preached, by the way. The Alter Rebbe himself got married to one of the wealthiest families in the region. And his father-in-law promised him a dowry of 5,000 ruble. Yes, 5,000 ruble is an enormous sum. And he told his father-in-law, I accept the dowry on condition that I get to decide what to do with the money and you have no say. And he said, sure. And he spoke it over with his wife and they gave away every penny to Tzedakah. He didn't keep a penny for himself. He did get the wife's permission. He did. He did. He did. Yeah. But be that as it may, that's what the Alter Rebbe says. He says, some of you have fallen asleep in the vanities of this world. Some of you became blind. I have to wake you up. 
The Alter Rebbe took it to the extreme. No doubt about it. And the Alter Rebbe gives it also a Hasidic side. He says, the Jewish people are called Goy Echad Ba'aretz, a singular nation in the land. That's the simple meaning of the verse. We're single. No matter how much we try to mix, we always come apart. That's why the Hanukkah miracle was with oil. Oil rises to the top. No matter how much you try to integrate, assimilate the Jewish people into the world, the world knows it and we know it, that we're different. We're chosen for something. On a deeper level, the word goy echad ba'aretz means the nation that finds echad, that finds unity, even in this earth. Even in a place where it's so not apparent that God is there, we find unity. We know there's no space without God's mastery. In fact, we declare it every single day, three times a day. We cover our eyes and we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. When you say Hashem is one, we don't just mean there's one God and not two gods. We mean that everything is one with God. Hashem is the one true being of the entire universe. The Alter Rebbe says, you cover your eyes. He writes this in the letter. You cover your eyes, blacking out all of reality, and you tell yourself a real deep truth. And then you open up your eyes, and it's as if it never, never happened. The idea is to close your eyes while sh- saying Shema, concentrate, and then when you open your eyes, you see a different world. So I have to wake you up to that, he says. There has to be consistency. You want to align yourself with God fully. That means that when you give tzedakah, it has to be done by the rules that the Torah dis- determines. In this case, the community in Eretz Yisrael needs our help. The Alter Rebbe says, let the Jewish people not be like the non-Jewish nations who support their wives and children out of love. Let us do it out of devotion to Hashem. Those are his words. In other words, the way I paraphrased it before, we do it not because it's human-based, but because it's God-based. And we give priority to those who the Torah says to give priority, in which case, it is our family. At certain times, there's some that go beyond it. Dr. apparently was going to meet with some of the communities himself. So he writes, I'm, I'm being shorthand in this letter. I'm going to talk to you more at length when we meet up. But uh, this is my message to you. And he says, it's all tzedakah nowadays. Tzedakah trumps all. It used to be that Torah, <clears throat> learning Torah trumped tzedakah. That's why we find so many great sages in past generations. People ask, you know, how come in the Talmud there were so many great minds? And today, the average person is not so great. The Alter Rebbe says, mystically, the reason for that is because in earlier generations, that was the call of the hour. The call of the hour was to engage in Torah study, so people were gifted with greater minds. Today, our call of the hour is to give tzedakah. Why? According to the Zohar, it's because Hashem, the Shekhinah, has descended to its lowest level ever since the temple was destroyed. Hashem used to be present in the Holy Temple, then He was exiled with the Jewish people, and Hashem came down, the Shekhinah came down to the level of Asiya. It's called level of deed. That's what we have. Wherever God is located, that's the path to God. God's presence has lowered itself into the realm of action, so our call is action. That's why it's all about action mitzvahs today. You understand a little more, you understand a little less, put on the tefillin. 
eat the matzah, shake the lulav, because that's where God is. God is to be found in the deed. And in the same way, when it comes to tzedakah, God is to be found in the deed. You have somebody who has less, do the act of giving. And that'll bring you to Hashem. Hashem lowered himself to the deed because we needed it? Is that why? Or what's, what's it seems like the closer we get to Mashiach, Hashem becomes closer and closer to the physical world. In times of old, Hashem was more spiritual. As godliness and the world fuse and become more and more in harmony, which is Mashiach's times, Hashem and the world becoming the most harmonious, peaceful state, Hashem lowers Himself to those realms more. And our marching orders change to match that. So it's only going to get worse until Mashiach comes. A little lower. A little lower. The, 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 the Rebbe's father-in-law would always say the darkest point of the night is just before dawn. Just before it starts to light. Mm-hmm. It gets the most dark. Isn't that, yeah. but you don't isn't know that when we say that God lowers himself to this physical world? Well, you know, it's like that we have short lives. Aren't so we really it's saying it's that dark, human consciousness Yes, that well, that's the ultimate. That is, that is what that's what we're looking for. But but until that happens, <laughs> until that meeting happens, we have to access him from within our reality right now. Some of the symptoms. Uh huh. God to lower Himself to our physical world, for many to be aware. the level of symptom will have to change? Will there be more light revealed? Yes, absolutely. When Mashiach comes, the symptom goes away. Right. But that's a process that maybe beginning with us. With us. We start, we peel away one curtain, we peel away another curtain, and before you know it, we get a glimpse behind the curtain and we see Hashem uncovering His face. Well, I imagine that. I imagine initially a lot of fear and, and confusion. I think that's why we go lower because it's almost uncomprehensible comprehensible that Mashiach is, yeah. is here and I think it, it'll frighten as many people as it's going to be sudden you know the the, uh, the Rebbe he used to spend a lot of the day in his office in 770 and there was one time two boys from the yeshiva that were sitting in the hall adjacent to the Rebbe's office if you've been there you know like a little room in the front and they were talking, and they were talking about what's it going to be like when Mashiach comes. Like, how is he going to come? Are we just going to come, a bolt of lightning? Like, are we going to be expecting him or not? And at that moment, the Rebbe came out of his room, unexpectedly, looking for a, a book. But he had heard the conversation. And when he walked in and the boys were startled, you know, and ran, he said, That's how the redemption is going to come. Huh. Mashiach's just going to come We don't want to be with our pants down when he comes, okay? That's the bottom line <laughs> Literally What's the deal with Abraham's donkey? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that That's another thing But the bottom line is I find it amazing You're such a, a Rebbe So knowledgeable on the Rebbe And and you're so young. It sounds like you, you know, you lived with him. You know him. Yeah, you're, you're so I did. I was born in 1950. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> he just remembers that 
Well, that's all I know. So I <laughs> Thank you. You <laughs> did a great job. Yeah. You think he's not that long ago. Uh, well, that's when the Rebbe started his leadership, so that's all I know. You know that. Yeah, the bottom. The thing is, 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 is that as, as it gets lower, you say, it's still the same lot from God. It's getting tipped Yes. So but that's the challenge. That's, that's the challenge. It depends on the individual where you, where you, where you at. Where oh. each individual is at. Now, what, co- what colored glasses are you, are you holding Yes, at? that's right. So, so yeah. by, by the way, just pause. You said he wanted to know what the word tzimtzum means. It's like we had this in our classes a couple of times. Tzimtzum is the Kabbalistic term, which means compression or reduction. And it's the concept that Hashem, in order to create the world, had to block some of himself, filter his presence, so that a world could exist. Like so a crock pot? That. No, like, like, uh, like, like a like, funnel. Like, oh, let's God. say you're, 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 sun. you're looking at the sun, you can't look at the sun. You put on glasses. There you go. Fresh days. You can't put crude oil into your car. That's the real deal, the crude oil. You have to refine it. Yes. Tens so a little times. exactly. You're not getting, you try to put crude on your car, you're going to car instantly. Unless it's a refinement. <laughs> but the bottom line, the Alter Rebbe says, the bottom line is doing, living by this principle, living truly from the lens of God's morality is tough. He calls it Zoveach Yitzro. In order to do it, you really have to sacrifice, slaughter your evil inclination. In other words, not a simple thing. He, he, he acknowledges that. Huh? No, but in this, in this element, he says, in this element, to overcome it, it's a Herculean strength that it takes. You got to really go for it. But if you do, the Alter Rebbe says, the same way you crack your own innate desires, Hashem will in turn do a crack on the negative forces that are influencing our world. Remember way back, we had a term called iskafia. Iskafia means bending. Right? Instead of now, say no. A little delaying at instant gratification. Iskafia means to bend. The Alter says when you bend yourself, Hashem will bend for you. And then, like in life, we want to adopt a new habit or a new lifestyle. First it takes bending. At first we've got to force ourselves but ultimately we become transformed in the way that it becomes second nature and we just go with it. It becomes who we are in the same way when it comes to tzedakah and when it comes to Hashem's response to the tzedakah. First, it's like a bending. It seems like it's unnatural, non-organic. It flies in the face of the nature of the world, but ultimately we transform it in a way that the human being and the physical world become a natural vehicle to be able to handle Hashem's presence. And, uh, and that's when we merit to see Mashiach and to see Hashem face to face, eye to eye. Chaim.